Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Life under the sun is not simple. It is complex and it requires wisdom to excel in life. And this proverb regards one of the ditches that we must avoid in life regarding the use of alcohol. There are legitimate uses for alcohol. It is appropriate for feasting and rejoicing. Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 9 calls out, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. Also, alcohol is a natural anesthetic. In Proverbs 31 we read, Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. However, the abuse of alcohol is all too common, which is why the Proverbs are also full of warnings about it. Today's proverb first describes wine and liquor. Wine is a mocker, which means that it does not give due honor nor respect. Alcohol can be an antidote to humility. Drinkers drink to forget, and when they forget their problems, they start to think they don't have any, making them think of themselves more highly than they ought, and they belittle others. They mock goodness and righteousness. They guffaw at order and peace. Wine causes men to be mockers, and mocking offends, and fighting follows. Strong drink is a brawler. Brawlers shoot first and ask questions later. They're not wise in their distribution of punishment. Thus they leave a wake of destruction and suffering behind them. So foolish drinkers are mockers and brawlers, but they do not get off scot-free. However they might feel in their drunken frenzy, they are not bulletproof nor invincible. The proverb says that wine is the mocker and strong drink is the brawler. The fools who are led astray by alcohol become the mocked, the bums in the street, and the outcasts in society. They suffer the destruction of their lives, the leaving of their wives, and the brokenness of their homes. Proverbs 22, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause? who has redness of eyes, those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Pray that God will give you the mercy and the grace to not fall into these dire straits. In all things we must submit to God and seek out wisdom in the complexities of life under the sun, under the sovereign reign of Jesus Christ. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins.
so we should start with a refresher about where we are at in the book. The first argument in the book of Ecclesiastes was from chapters 1 and 2. In it, the preacher taught that there is no inherent good in man that they should enjoy life. Also, he taught that life on the earth is a vapor. The second argument from chapter 3 to chapter 5, verse 20, Solomon taught that God is sovereign over everything, and he answered various objections to this teaching, including concluding with wisdom about worship and money, telling us that it is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun, because it is his heritage and it is the gift of God. So in the second argument, Solomon taught that God is sovereign. So far in the third argument, chapter 6 to chapter 7, verse 15, we saw that because of sin, we must use wisdom in order to evaluate outward conditions properly. In other words, wealth is not an automatic good or blessing, and suffering is not an automatic curse. God is writing a story, and sometimes heroes suffer, and sometimes villains prosper. Likewise, in the second half of chapter 7, we saw that we must use wisdom to evaluate men properly. Because God made man upright, but they have sought after many schemes. In these sections, Solomon proclaims the wisdom of accepting that we cannot know everything. And we must look to God for wisdom. Today's text concludes the third argument in the book of Ecclesiastes. And our text starts with a proclamation of both observation and faith. Chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like a wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. Solomon is about to give us some instruction about how to live in a fallen world under a sovereign God. But he's just finished a rather disheartening discussion of the inscrutable wickedness of men. His, his, conclusion was, his conclusion was, we can't understand men. He said, I considered a thousand men, and I couldn't find, find one. And he, couldn't, uh, he found one in a thousand men and he, that he could understand. He couldn't understand even one in a thousand women. So he starts with this proclama proclamation. Men may be fallen, and they may seek out many schemes, but wisdom is still valuable. It makes a man stand out from the crowd. It makes his face shine. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. Wisdom also gives a man maturity and understanding. The sternness of his face is changed. A wise man is not hard, he's not insolent, and he's not impetuous. He is strong. And he stands for truth. But in his strength, he's not cold nor calculating. Solomon's not a stoic. He's not somebody who says, well, you just accept fate and you know, stick out your chin and, 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 and suffer through it. No, Solomon's not like that. Neither, neither is wisdom. Because the sternness of the face is changed by wisdom. We, you don't just approach the world with a stern face. 
So if wisdom is valuable, how are we to pursue it? What does wisdom look like in a world where down sometimes seems up and up sometimes feels down? And this is where he starts, and he starts right at the top as he discusses wisdom in the halls of power. Chapter 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. So Solomon says, men are wicked, but wisdom is good. And now he's going to give us some, some, some ground rules for how we are to live in this world. He starts, telling men to submit to the king. And we do not do that because the king is perfect. We don't submit to the authorities because they don't make mistakes. We don't even do it because they're well-intentioned. They may be a despot. But the basis of our obedience to the king is our faith in God. Remember, God is sovereign and those who rule are placed in that position by him. Paul says this, this explicitly in Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And continuing in verse 7. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers... Attending continually to this very thing, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So we must obey lawful authorities. But next, Solomon tells us that this is not something we should do begrudgingly. It's not something that we just do on the surface. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 3a. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. If the king is a minister of God, if the king is a minister of God, then he must be honored truly. Not just on the surface. Even if the man is not admirable, his office is. Respect his office. Respect his office, and respect his position in that office. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Patience is much more effective than a quick exit in attaining your goals. Next, Solomon tells us, do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. So first, pick your battles carefully. Be certain that whatever hill you choose to die on is not an evil one. Do not take your stand for an evil thing. In the context of these verses, it may well be interpreted by saying, don't rebel or plot against the king. If God has given you a king, it is your duty to serve him. There's, a, there's an oath. There's, there's a conscience. For, for, your, for conscience sake, you are to obey him. Um, Keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. If God has placed him over you, do not rebel. Do not plot against him. David was an, a fine example of how to serve a king that was not righteous, but was still the Lord's anointed. He served Saul faithfully. 
He had opportunities to kill him. He had opportunities to rebel. He did not do that. Even when you struggle with your king's decisions or leadership, you must submit to their authority because it's a gift that God has given them. And it's a responsibility they have. And your responsibility is not to judge him. God judges him. Your responsibility is to serve God. And if God has placed him as your authority, then you must serve him. Second, we get the reason for this. The king's words are powerful, and it's not your place to question his policies. Verse 4. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? If he is a king, God has given him the authority. It is not your place to question him. And third, this is prudence. It's wisdom, and it will protect you from danger and disaster. Verse 5. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. So a wise man serving a wicked king obeys him, and yet he is not quick to leave his presence. And he's not, he will not take a stand on it for an evil thing. And he will obey the king because he's, God's given him this authority. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. He will be safe from the king's judgment because he is blessing the king. And fourth, even though this may be interpreted as capitulation to wickedness or compromise with evil, that is not what it is. This is not capitulation to evil. It's not compromise. Instead, it is wisdom. What it is, is it's prudence and flexibility. Verse 5 to 7. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is a time and judgment. Though the misery of man increases greatly, for he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? God is in control. And the essence of wisdom is fearing Him. So if you fear God, God grants wisdom to you. Remember verse 1. Who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face to shine. Wise men understand how to interpret times and seasons the times and seasons in which they live they know that there's both a time and a judgment and they discern when the time comes and when the judgment comes so God teaches the wise when that right time is we don't know the future so we must be patient in the pursuit of God's Kingdom. Another way of putting it is that we must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. To understand the motivation of evil men. And to work against their designs without falling into their temptations is the work of wisdom. Sometimes that means you, you bite your lip. You bite your tongue and you don't say anything because the time is not right. But when the time comes, if you stand for justice and truth, you will have your opportunity to do that. And there is a time and judgment for every matter. Verse 6. 
Because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. So there is a time. There is a time when God will judge wickedness. And even though we may not see the end of suffering, we may not see when is that happening, God does. And it's not our responsibility to do something about it right now. God bears the burden of doing something. Though the misery of man increases greatly, a wise man must wait on God's, God's timing to set things right. Now, for a short aside, our text has been talking about kings and submitting to them. And particularly talking to courtiers, or those who would have a hand or, or in directing his decision making. Well, we don't live under a king. We have a president. We have Congress. And they are all a long way from here. So, but that doesn't make this text inaccessible to us. God designed the world to work through authority structures. That means that these things are applicable to each of us in our own, situ- in our own station with whatever authorities God places in our lives that God gives to us. Children, kids. That means that you must submit to and obey your parents. Those of you, even, even when you disagree with them, and even when you think they're nuts, you must submit to them. You must honor them because God gave them to you, and they are responsible for you. Do not rebel against them. Don't fight against their authority. God calls you to honor them. Likewise, wives, you must submit to your husbands. Those of you with jobs must obey your bosses. Drivers, obey the speed limits and the traffic laws. Citizens, don't cheat on your taxes. Follow the ordinances in your township. As members of the church, submit to the elders. And in all of this, you do it not because of the worthiness of the person, the personality of the person in authority, nor because they're so honorable, though they may be and they should be honorable, That's not why we obey. That's not why we submit. You are to obey because it is how you obey God. It's what he commands in his word, is that we submit to lawful authorities. And he has placed these authorities over us. And we must trust that he knows what he is doing. Next, In verses 8 to 11, Solomon gives us some proverbs about authority to justify these attitudes of submission that he's prescribing. He starts with a reminder that we'll all answer for what we do on this plane of existence. We all die, and then we'll all answer to God for how we lived our lives. Verse 8. No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. This is particularly a reminder for kings and authorities that they are not above God. But it is also a reminder for wise men that suffering here and now, while difficult, is temporary. Our lives are a shadow. 
We're like the grass which flowers and fades. And in the battle between good and evil, the losing side is predetermined. God is good, and he destroys evil. Wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. So the first proverb says, everybody dies. That's a, that's a warning to, to kings and authorities, and it's a relief to those who are under despots. God's in control. The next proverb is verse 9. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. This proverb is a warning to those who would be kings or authorities, and those who are anxious to rebel against them. Our natural inclination is to envy leaders and rulers. Their lives seem so much better because of the glory and honor and the perks their position has. However, many times, the guy in charge, being the guy in charge, has its drawbacks. Beware of the appearance of a greener side of the fence. First, leadership can tie you up so that you may be prevented from pursuing other more desirable callings for you. Things that you just really desire to do. If God puts you in leadership, you may have your hands tied in doing that. Next, it means that you must answer for the state of things. It's a responsibility that God gives you. And if the business fails on your watch, your reputation takes the hit. Another sad example is the shame and heartache that the father of a fool has. It's not a blessing for him to, to rule over a fool. In fact, whenever a ruler rules over a fool, it's not a blessing to him. It's, it's ruling to his own hurt. And because leaders are responsible for those under their care, leadership makes leaders vulnerable to suffering. Because of sin, leading men is a daunting challenge. And it's not a cakewalk. Because of sin, there's a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. And consider this. The greatest example of leadership is Jesus Christ. And he died for those over whom he rules. He suffered for our sakes. And thus he is worthy to be our king. But leadership is not always easy. So be careful what you wish for. The next proverb is verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. This proverb is another reminder of the temporary nature of life, particularly for the wicked. Their fame is temporary. They will disappear from the earth, and then they will answer to God. The next proverb is verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. This proverb recognizes the short attention span of sinners. Their, their, their short recollection. And this is particularly evident in little children. They're always testing the boundaries and checking to see how much they can get away with. 
Swift and appropriate discipline keeps them on the straight and narrow. But foolishness is bound up in the heart in their hearts, so if you get lax, they will figure it out. They will test the boundaries. So children are an ideal example of, of what this looks like. But that said, it's also true of societies. Kings and authorities would be wise to pay attention here. Men are fallen. We have a fallen disposition. We believe in, in total depravity of the, of the human heart. When Adam sinned, we all died spiritually. We are prone to evil. So men are fallen, they are wicked, and they're opportunistic. If you want to establish justice and righteousness and peace in your realm, then be prompt in executing sentence against crimes. This will bless you in many ways. First, it will teach a lesson to the perpetrator. Second, it will be an example to those observing would-be criminals. When they see what happens to the criminal and he gets his, his just desserts, then they say, oh, I don't want to get that. Even if it's not their innate goodness that's keeping them from it. Third, it may put the brakes on a downward slide into greater crimes and more serious issues. Following these proverbs about authority, in verses 12 to 14, Solomon displays his faith despite all the injustice and the depravity of men. Verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. All of the problems of living in a fallen society are nothing when seen in the light of a sovereign, good, and eternal God. All of the frustrations of living in, in, in society with fallen men are nothing when we look to God. Notice two things here. First, sinners cannot touch those who fear God. Their lives are a shadow and they will answer to God. It will not be well with the wicked. It will be well with those who fear God. If God is sovereign and he is reigning in heaven, this is what Solomon observes. This is his statement of faith. This is the way the world works. Even as confusing and as frustrating as looking at the world can be, God will vindicate the righteous and he will punish the wicked. Here we see the definition of wisdom. The difference between those who, who do evil a hundred times, those who it will not be well with, with the wicked, the difference between them and how the people who are saved, the people who it will be well with, is the people who it will be well with fear God. And the reason that it will not be well with the wicked is because he does not fear before God. That's the definition of wisdom. Do you fear God? If you do, you will be righteous, safe, and protected. Keep your eyes on him. Even if you die, you go to be with God, and it will be well with you. If you don't fear God, you are wicked. In fact, you are wicked because you do not fear God. 
Next, in verse 14, Solomon observes a great injustice that happens on the earth. There's a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the, of the wicked. So the first half there, there are righteous men who suffer like as if they were doing wicked things. Again, the second half of the verse, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. The second half of the verse, there are wicked men who are prospering. Who God is he's giving them all kinds of rope. And giving them all kinds of freedom and blessing. And just, it's not fair. I said that this also is vanity. So there's a vanity which occurs on the earth, and then he says these two things. I said that this also is vanity. Sin makes life under the sun messy. This state of things is unbearable. Yet it is absolutely undeniable that this is the way the world is. Wicked men sometimes prosper, while righteous men sometimes suffer. But one important detail here is that twice Solomon calls this vanity. Primarily this means that this is a passing state. It's vaporous. Yeah, sure, the rich guy, or the, the, the bad guy is, is winning right now. But you know what? The story is not over. And we know how the story ends. Ultimately, God will call everything into question. The righteous will be vindicated and the wicked will be punished. But that's a statement of faith. It's not something you see. It's something that you believe. It's something that you know because God reveals it to you. And finally, Solomon gives us the conclusion of the third argument. Verse 15. So I commended enjoyment. Because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. This is a bit of an odd conclusion, don't you think? It's a surprise, is it not? In this argument, Solomon has told us that riches aren't necessarily good. Suffering isn't necessarily bad. He's told us that men are fallen. We can't figure out their many twists and turns. Today he told us that wise men are ruled by wicked sometimes. And that we are all subject to somebody. And then in the end we all die. And he just finished with the greatest injustice that happens. Wicked prosper and righteous suffer. And this is the conclusion? Eat, drink, and be merry? Well, yes, absolutely. Is wisdom devil-may-care rejoicing? No. This isn't just saying, well, it doesn't make sense, let's go throw a party. Let's, go, let's all go get drunk. That's not what he's saying. It's not devil may care. It's not saying, well, I give up, and then I'm going to go just eat, drink, and be merry. That's not what he's saying. Is this joviality based on empty-headed fearlessness? Like, well... I, you know, I just don't care. No, no, that's not what it is. Instead, this is a robust joy based on the fear of God. It is a profound and deep joy, despite the evils in the world. Because by faith, we know that God holds the reins. 
This is a love of life. We love life because God gave it to us. It's a gift. Eat, drink, rejoice. What better cause to rejoice than to receive a gift? Yesterday, Zachary had a birthday party. And at Zachary's birthday party, when he opened his gifts, he rejoiced and he thanked the giver for the gifts. At Christmas time, when your little ones open their gifts, there's such exuberance. They rejoice. They're gifts. God gives us a natural tendency to rejoice and celebrate when we get good things. Life is a gift, so live it. Rejoice. God gives you your food and your breath. He gives you sensations, heat and cold. He gives you strength, and he, he gives you trials. Don't forget that this is all a gift. And you owe somebody thanks for it. All of these gifts are given to you for a purpose. Don't bury your gifts in the ground. Use them. Invest them. Rejoice. Give them back to God. Because God is sovereign, we are not permitted to be sourpusses. Because God is good, we must praise Him. Solomon commands enjoyment because that is what God intended life to be for us. A joy and a pleasure. We must learn to let go of our concerns and worries. Give them to God. Instead of worrying, we need to thank Him and receive from Him what we need. He knows what we need, and we must learn what that is. All of life is a constant lesson that all men must learn. And that is that we need to turn to God for what we need. Remember chapter 3. God does it that men should learn to fear before Him. The reason God does everything is so that we could learn to fear before Him. And that is what wisdom is all about. What, when we learn to fear before God, we achieve our purpose. Which, you might ask, well, what is that? The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Because God is God. And because God is sovereign, Solomon tells us that our job is to eat, drink, and be merry. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. As we heard in this sermon this morning, we are called to rejoice in this life. But as we also heard in the sermon this morning, this life is vaporous. And there is sometimes injustice that we must bear. Sometimes we must submit to cruel and harsh authorities. Sometimes we must weep with those who mourn. Sin is evil, and it's a barrier to our joy. But we rejoice in the deliverance that Jesus gave us from sin. Jesus has shown us how life can overpower death. How good triumphs over evil. 
He showed us how to submit to wicked rulers by dying on the cross. He overcame death and he shows us how to live. In Christ, God calls each of us to live in the pattern of death and resurrection. We must die to ourselves and give our lives to God so that he can mold us into what he wants us to be. He has a plan for each of us. And we must submit to him if we will find it out. That means we must be open to following him where he leads us and accepting from him the demands he places on us. However, we can be certain in all of it that it is our good he has in mind. It is our blessing that Jesus has purchased. It is for our enjoyment and fulfillment. We must simply accept him in faith, which is what we come to this table for every Sunday. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.